impact. Jesus commands believers to be salt and light in every aspect of their lives. Join us today as Senior Pastor Dean Hunter speaks with believers who are making an impact for the cause of Christ and through their testimony are encouraging others to impact their world. Welcome to the very first episode of the Impact Podcast with Dean Hunter. My name is Dean Hunter, and I'm the pastor here at Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina, and we uh, welcome you to the Impact Podcast, and thank you for subscribing. We are looking forward to uh, a great time as we begin this podcast, and just a little overview really quickly to let you know the purpose and the vision behind this podcast is uh, just exactly what the title is impact. And uh, my, my desire is to showcase believers who are making an impact for the cause of Christ. It's very clear in scripture, uh, Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 5, that uh, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus said we are the light, and as light of the world, Christians are to let our, shine, our light shine before men. And uh, Jesus says when this happens, when we uh, let our light shine and do good works, God the Father, is glorified by our good works. Paul says to the church in uh, Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And even in the Great Commission, which I think is oftentimes overlooked in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And That phrase, go therefore, he's saying wherever you go, whatever you do, while you're going, uh, let your light shine, uh, disciple the nations, and um, my goal is to highlight those who maybe you know, maybe you don't know, introduce you to some people you don't know, uh, who are making an impact, who have made an impact, and uh, today for our very first podcast, I have specifically chosen a man that uh, to many of you who are here at our church and local in this area know well. Uh, He's been a mentor and what I consider a father figure to me for nearly 40 years now. It's hard to believe I can say 40 years and know that um, I'm that old. Uh, He was the former pastor here at Central Baptist Church for 38 years, and certainly this man has made an impact for the cause of Christ and continues to do so, impacting my life and many others in our area. And so it is a great honor and privilege to introduced to you and have on our very first podcast, uh, Pastor Curtis Parker. Many of you and myself know him as simply Preacher Parker. And so Preacher Parker, it's really good to have you here uh, today and uh, spend some time with you on our very first podcast. So welcome. Good to be here. I appreciate all you've done, obviously, for not just me, but our church, Central Baptist Church, over so many years and the impact you've made here in the Kannapolis area. And uh, we just want to spend some time together and um, talk about your life, talk about your ministry. Certainly, there are people around here that know you and uh, maybe know a little more than others, but um, want to spend some time just allowing you to provide some information, give some testimony of just who you are and uh, where you're at now in ministry. I'm certainly, as we come to a conclusion uh, today, uh, I really want to get to some conversation about what you see happening in in our world today in the local church and and uh, just kind of glean some wisdom from you there but first off I just kind of want to give you the floor and allow you to tell us a little bit about yourself uh, 
don't act as if I know you. Act as if I don't know you because there's many who will listen to this that are be uh, intrigued by by your conversation and your testimony. But kind of just start, and we'll go from there as far as um, where you were born and raised and your family and, and anything you want to tell us uh, about your life. Brother Dean, first of all, let me just say uh, I'm honored uh, that you've asked us to be the very first one, and I think this will be a tremendous ministry. And uh, I'm going to look forward to what takes place from this even in days to come. Uh, when you talk about where I was born, that a long time ago, uh, about 80 years ago, but I was born in High Point, North Carolina, uh, Guilford County, in 1943. And uh, I lived there for about 10 years. Uh, my father had left. Uh, South Carolina went up there and worked in the furniture place just to have a job. And so, to be honest with you, after about 10 years, my dad and mother moved back to Marlboro County, Bennettsville, South Carolina. And uh, after those 10 years and going back to South Carolina, I really grew up in South Carolina. So I had 10 years in North Carolina, but the rest of my life basically in South Carolina. And... Uh, Lived there until God called me into the ministry. Right. And and obviously we know kind of the rest of the story that you spent have spent so many years in ministry. Uh, I'm intrigued to know kind of your family life. And um, as you talk about your family, your parents, what that looked like, uh, how you were raised, economic status, things like that, how that kind of, uh, with God's obvious calling, how that kind of introduced you into ministry and, and get to the place where you were called to ministry or called to salvation first and then called to ministry. Yeah. If you want to share that testimony with us. Uh, Dean, I will tell you that um, my home where I grew up was quite different than uh, probably a lot of pastors today. But uh, my, my mother was what one of the old saints of God, a Sunday school teacher. My dad was not a committed father. And uh, so we grew up in a very difficult time. And uh, I remember my mother being so committed that we would walk to church as a young boy. And I'm talking about I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, and we had to walk. Uh, we lived in a cow pasture at that time. That was where we lived. And uh, that was all we could afford, and my dad and mother. And so after that, um, my mother would walk us up to the road on Sunday morning. And uh, somebody come out and pick us up and take us to church. And I remember the very time that God began to deal with my heart. Of course, my Sunday school teacher, and I, I tell you, all Sunday school teachers need to be, I want you to hear this. My Sunday school teacher just died just a few months ago, Miss Marcella Chavis, and she, was a, she taught me as a junior, and she was a wonderful Sunday school teacher. I mean, it had a dynamic impact on my life. She had a daughter who had polio, and, of course, we, grew, we lived close together. And uh, she was not such an excellent teacher, but God began to deal with my heart. And I remember things that she said even back then. And so after that, about, I think, somewhere around 52, 53, I, uh, something like that, uh, 55 maybe, and that God began to deal with my heart about salvation. And we had a Bible school, and I gave my heart and life to Christ. I didn't fully understand what was going on when I made that commitment. I just knew that I needed to be saved. 
And so I went home that night and got the next morning at 6 o'clock, I got a confirmation of my salvation because that night I got down and prayed. I was very serious. I wanted to know for sure that I was a born-again Christian. And I prayed for God to wake me up the next morning at 6 o'clock, and that sounds real stupid, but it did. And at 6 o'clock the next morning, God woke me up, and that was a miracle because I never woke up that time of day. But I had such a relief to know that God had heard a young boy's prayer, and I accepted that down all these years as being settled on my salvation. And, of course, after that, God began to work in many, many ways in my life. And shortly after my salvation experience, I was asked if I would go to uh, Ridgecrest one year with the BTU group. And we only had like uh, three of us that went, a chaperone and two other, me and one other guy. And uh, even there at that time, God really was dealing with my heart. And uh, But you know how the story goes. You get older and you get careless and you feel like you know everything, you don't need anything. And uh, I always went to church, but as far as commitment, it wasn't what it was supposed to be. And I look back over my life and I, I wish that I'd been more committed back then, but uh, to get into my family, and well, let me just say this. My dad was a very hard-working fellow, but he had no education. He had a sixth-grade education. My mother had a tenth-grade education, and she was a little better off than he was in those areas. Of course, she could read. My, Bible, my daddy couldn't do much reading the Bible at all, but my mother did. But my dad was, uh, he was a very carnal fellow, and I hate to say that, but uh, he was. And, of course, later in life, he sold out to God and became a deacon and became a you know singer and all these kind of things, and God used him in a great way. But the early years of my life, it was the influence of my mother and my grandmother. My grandmother would sit down at night when my mother was working second shift. When we lived in at Calpest, and she'd take the Bible. And she'd sit down with me and my two sisters, and she'd read that Bible every night. I mean, we took time to read that Bible. My grandmother was a uh, an old saint of God also. She was one of the old, you know, what we... I, I grew up thinking that a saint of God was a real spiritual lady who had her hair up on the back of her head in a ball. That's the way grandmother was. And she played the organ at church, and uh, but, boy, she was sold out to the Lord, and... Uh, she, she had an impact on my life. She died in 1958 uh, with the first case of cancer I'd ever heard about. But uh, her name was Leela Driggers, mm. and uh, a precious lady. I, every time I go home now down in the Beneficial area, I'll go out and walk through that old cemetery by the home church, and I, I always look up my grandparents and reminded of what kind of lives they live. All of them wasn't as good as they should have been, but... But Grandma Lila was solid. Right. With that in mind, that kind of wants, makes me want to go in a, a little different direction. You talk so much about your family and, and the impact they've had and and maybe just kind of give some insight today, obviously, what um, what we refer to as the nuclear family is not really as nuclear as it used to be. You have so many mixed uh, homes, uh, broken homes. Of course, last week was Mother's Day. I, I preached about mothers. You know, my mom, she had an impact on my life. Um, maybe from, from your point of view, 
just kind of shed some light on your wisdom and discernment from what you see in families today and the, the impact positive and negative. Unfortunately, a lot of negative we see in relation to the spiritual and to the church and things like that. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Well, when you think, when you think about families today, uh, first of all, churches are so different. But churches today are functioning in ways that they never functioned back in my days as a boy. But when I think about the family itself, uh, I will say this to begin with. First of all, mothers and fathers need to understand how important it is to be an example before their children in living the Christian life. But when you think about the church and the way it is, and when I grew up, it was very a time of very racist. I mean, it was, you know, we didn't go to school with blacks. We didn't, uh, we didn't have all the different nationalities that we have. Right, right. But today, genuine Christianity, I believe, is coming to the forefront in a way where there is more acceptance of the person than there is uh, so much of a nationality. Uh, I know it was very difficult in my day. When things began to change, there was so much anger in the South with racism. Uh, But today I see churches uh, opening up. We have blacks, we have whites, we have Hispanic, we have just about every nationality. And we have welcome signs on a solid church. If a church is what it ought to be, there are people that are welcome no matter who they are. And it goes way back to a little song we used to sing when I was a boy in Sunday school. I mean, long time ago, 75 years ago, 60 anyway. And that song was red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Right. Somehow we got away from that over the years, but thank God, I think now, maybe we're not singing that little song, but in our heart, many of our churches are recognizing where we've been wrong, and we're opening our doors, and there's no big eyes and little little U's in the church today. Right, and that's definitely a positive that's happened yeah. in the church. Yeah. Um, as far as the family is concerned, thinking about the influence of your mom, uh, I think about the the statistics of marriage and you read what I read, you've heard what I've heard, that the, the statistics of divorce in the church are no different than that right, outside the right. world. And, and as a pastor, you see that. You see the women that are involved, the moms that are involved. Of course, we, I don't speak for you, but I'm sure we say we're grateful for that mom that walked us to church right. or that mom right. that drug us out of bed and made us go to church. Right. Um, you, you see that still being, I think it's so much different because, even though the dads were absent from the church, they were they were present in the home. Sure. And today you have them absent from the home and absent in the church. Right. And what do you see happening? Uh, obviously, we have opinions about what, how that fleshes out in the church. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I, I can respond to that like you want me to, but um, – when you're, what are you asking me? Let me be honest, be sure I'm under, understanding what you're asking me. How how it's influ- how the dads absent at home and the church are influencing the young men specifically growing up in the church. Well, I think when you when you grow up without a father, 
you have a tendency to follow the path of that father and his decisions in making. But if you have a father that that grew up that was actually faithful, then you want to be faithful like he was. But there's a, there's a there's a tendency for sons to want to be like their dads. Right. And so that's that's why I think today that we have so many young couples that are dividing and divorcing. Uh, even sometimes at the advice of a dad or right. a mother. And that's sad. I mean, I've, I've right. seen that in churches I've pastored. And uh, I'm glad God's grace is greater than all of our sin, but I have, I still preach strongly, and I know you do too, God's original plan for the home. But just because somebody's home doesn't fit that plan doesn't mean that we ought to condemn them, uh, ridicule them, throw them out the door, not make them welcome. Right. We need to help them understand God's love is a reality. Yep. Forgiveness is a reality. I agree. So, so you get saved in Bible school, um, 12 years old, roughly. Somewhere around there, 12, And um, I think you've already alluded to the fact that like many, many teenagers, you kind of get away from God if that's possible. I understand yep. what we mean by that. And then maybe kind of walk us through uh, how you got closer to God and lead kind of your adult life into, I know you worked a, a public job, but then eventually called to ministry full time. Right, so right. kind of walk us through what that looked like. Okay. Uh, in 19, well, when I graduated from high school in 1961, uh, quickly after that I left and went in the military. National Guard went off for six months active duty and uh, was at Fort Jackson for about nine or ten weeks and then went to Fort Knox, Kentucky. And I was, a, I was a country boy, never been away from home. And uh, when I got into Kentucky, uh, getting in some areas I should not have been under the influence of people in the military at that time, you didn't have many Christians, you didn't have any church. You had churches on base and you could go to them, but it was not that, nothing like what you'd ever been used to. And so you get careless and you, you, know, you, you let your priorities get out of order. Well, when I came home, uh, my priorities were out of order. I got back in church, and, of course, I made some shallow commitments. And uh, when I say shallow commitments, I mean that's exactly what they were. I mean, I wanted to do right, but I was struggling with it. And uh, in the church I grew up, we had no discipling. We had, I mean, it was just go to church on Sunday morning, and the preacher preached a message, gave an invitation. We went home, came back on Sunday night, did the same thing. But in 1900 and uh, 65, going off, uh, coming back, and uh, I met a young lady. Uh, her name was Ruby Doris Crowley, and her, known, you know her as Susie. And she was a good Christian girl and grew up in a, a Baptist church in Shaw. And uh, we, we got to seeing each other pretty close, and four months later, we were married. And uh, two years later, we had our well, in 65, we had our first child. And, boy, she was, uh, along with the influence of God and my pastor, began to work on me. And uh, from 1965 to 68, uh, I had a period of three years of maturity that took place as far as a husband, as far as a father uh, that was led and influenced by my wife, 
we didn't have all great days or great weeks, but she was just very steadfast in what she believed and, and wouldn't let me move much either way. And I'll be honest with you, one day we had a situation, and she just sat me down, and she said, I'm not going to live this way. And uh, you make up your mind if you want to be a husband and a father of these kids. And, and she said, I love you with all my heart, but I'm not going to live this way. You make up your mind what you want to do. And, boy, I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart. And that was uh, in 1968. At that time, I committed my life totally to the Lord, the best I knew how. And uh, I became a deacon in the church some short period of time after that. And I'm not sure I was worthy of that, but anyway, I became one. And I started singing a lot, wound up singing in a little quartet. 1971, God began to deal with my heart about the ministry actually in 1970. And for a year, I lived in misery. I'll be honest with you. I was wrestling with God. And I was, it was not that I didn't want to do that. It was the fact that I just didn't think I could do that. I had no formal education. Uh, at the time, I was, God was dealing with me. I was 28 years old when I surrendered to preach in 1971. 21st day of October. It's almost like getting saved again when God lifted that burden off of me that morning. And uh, in less than a year, well, in about six months, I started filling in for a little church down South Carolina called Cash Baptist, where there wasn't no cash yet, by the way. <laughs> and uh, there was never a pulpit committee. There was never <laughs> never a serious uh, get-together as far as pastor. One Sunday, the chairman deacon said, uh, we want to vote on you tonight. Well, it was an unusual story, but a week or two before that, I'd been visiting with my pastor, and uh, we were going down to Florence to see this lady, and I asked him, I said, does that church, did they call a pastor? He said, yes, and I said, last Sunday, they called this man, and God had spoke to me that same night and said I was going to pastor that church, but I didn't know when, and uh, the following day, when he told me that night, he said, yeah, they called a man Sunday, I thought, well, What's going on? And uh, the next day, I walked into the plant where I was working at the time, and a young lady by the name of Shirley Chapman stopped me, and she said, the church wants to know if you would come and maybe fill in or preach for us Sunday morning. We don't have anybody to preach for us. I said, I thought you called a pastor. She said, we did, but he called us and said he wasn't coming. And at that time, I felt my heart rate really get up because I knew what God was doing. And I went there, and I started filling in. Of course, I had a couple other obligations I had to take care of. But to make a long story short, in just a few months, Chairman Dickens came and said, we're going to vote on the United. Is that okay? And I, I, didn't want, I said, yes. I didn't want to tell him that I'd been knowing for a while right. it was going to happen. Right. And uh, so they voted 100%, and I became pastor of that church, and that was my first pastor for eight years. Mm. So, so you said a lot there um, from – from getting right with God to yeah. being called to ministry. And I, I think today, and, and of course, I was youth pastor for quite a while here under your leadership. And um, something that you hear often, even as a pastor and you deal with, you, maybe you deal with it more with teenagers, yeah. is um, one thing that I don't think we could finish in four hours of a podcast, which is people being assured of their salvation. Right. There's a lot right. of question about that. And 
I've heard you preach about it. I've preached about it. I think there's scripture. So, so let's not act as if that doesn't exist, but go to the next as far as like calling to service, calling to full-time ministry. And I've even heard you and I've witnessed, you know, there were, there were days, periods of time where you had a lot of men, a lot of young men surrendering to full-time ministry. Yeah. If we're honest, we don't see that much anymore. Right. Um, Maybe you can just kind of talk through what that to you looked like, um, felt like. I know it's hard to say feelings when you're talking about Christianity, but for for a young man who's thinking about, you know, is God calling him to ministry? What what does that what did that look like to you, and and how did you get assurance of it? Right. When God began to deal with me, and and actually that confirmation of that particular church was one thing in a follow up, but. In my call to the ministry, I, I just really prayed and prayed. And I knew it was God dealing with me. It seemed like every time I went to church, the pastor was preaching to me. But he encouraged me. He told me one day, he said, listen, he said, God wants to do something with you. And I think a pastor needs to have that relationship with his young men and know them well enough to know that something's going on in his spiritual life. And he had seen a big change just because I'd gotten right with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... As he began to encourage me, and I told him some of the fears I had of not having an education, and he, he began to tell me, he said, Curtis, if God calls you, he will equip you. And that's what I've tried to say to young preachers. Number one, be sure you're saved. Number two, be sure you're divinely called. And if, that, if you are sure of those two things, whenever trouble time comes, you can say with all your heart, I have a right to be here. Right. And in my life, I had a right to be pastor of Cash Baptist Church because God said so. Right. And it was not easy. It, and they'd never had a full-time pastor. I didn't know anything about pastor. I had no formal education at all. And I will tell you this because it made, made such an impact on my life. Something happened, I think it was in 1974, uh, my wife, dad died, and he was like my father. They worked side and side in the mill for thirty years, and uh, when he died, he left. He had three children. He left all three of them a thousand dollars in bonds. And my wife said to me, "I want you to take this thousand dollars and go to school." And I didn't want to do that, but there was no way for me to go to school. Unless I had some kind of financial something. And so I took that $1,000, and I went to the deacons, and, and I told them, I said, fellas, I said, God's opening the door for me to go to school. I'm going to be going to Fulham Bible College for a couple of years. And I said, uh, but I'm, I need y'all to cut my pay, and it wasn't much. But you need to cut my pay because I'm going to be gone on Wednesday night and will not be on the field from Monday to Friday because I had to leave on Monday and didn't get back to Friday. I walked out of the building where we were meeting, and I walked back toward the parsonage. They said, we'll let you know. Well, in less than 60 seconds, they hollered at me and said, I want you to come back a minute. I thought they were going to ask me something. I walked back in. They said, we just voted to get you a $25 a week raise. <laughs> at that time, Fruitland was like $300-something a quarter. So that took to my schooling, which was another confirmation that God was using me Right. And going to use me yeah. in the ministry. So it's fair to say 
God uses circumstances yes. and people yes. Yes. Uh, to do it. I remember a guy, that you would know him if I called his name, and I only say this um, to maybe help somebody. I was in a meeting here when I was the youth pastor, minister of education, and I had this, I had a man speak up in front of people. It was not the right time. He should have done it privately. And I felt, I was hurt, but I felt like he was questioning me and I think it was personally just he didn't like me, to be quite honest. Yeah. And he, he asked in front of a whole group of teachers, what makes you think you're called to ministry? <laughs> and um, I wanted to say, let's let's schedule a meeting, let's talk about it, but in front. And I remember just thinking on my feet, thinking, you know, I, there's a lot of things I could do. I'm, I'm not a – I can work with my hands. I think I'm halfway intelligent. You had a job before you were called to ministry. Right, right. Quite certain you were making more money than you were when you took the first church. And my response to him, quick thinking was, um, I know I would not have peace with God if I was doing anything outside of that's serving it. him full time. And um, I think that's something, and you, you alluded to that, when you know you're called, you don't know this, but with our staff here, I've had these five C's going now for a couple months, and the first C is called to know you're called to ministry, know you're called to salvation. And that takes care of a lot of other problems. Sure. Uh, problems still exist, but just that security and knowing you were called. Yeah. You're called to salvation. You're called to serve. And um, you know you would not have peace with God if you were doing anything else. That's exactly right. And so uh, I think today, and I, we have people here in our church, we've got a couple, fortunately, we've got a couple young young men who are, going into ministry. We've got one working here now that's a ministry assistant and um, going to school. And so um, you, you made another statement about just the pastors having that relationship with the young men in the church. Yeah. And I'll say this, you know this, it's not secret. Um, I looked up to you for years and years thinking maybe not even ministry. Like I want to be a pastor when I grow up, but like I want to be like him. I want to have a wife. I want to have a family. I want a, a, a normal what I thought was a normal family and for men in the church today, pastors in the church, leaders in the church to set that example means the world yep. to, to the half many times of young men who don't have a dad yeah. or live with a mom or live with a single parent. So it's, um, you also made the comment. It's good to know that God's grace is sufficient and, um, failure is not final. Amen. And, um, I think t you would probably amen the fact that you know, you know, you mess up. You know, you're not perfect. You made the statement earlier. Um, one of your, one of your hurdles mentally was, who, who am I to be pastoring the church? Why would God right. allow me to pastor a right. church? Which, which I think we know is probably one of the criteria for God to use somebody. Is Amen. To say, I'm, I think that's so. <laughs> I'm not worthy of it. So, um, so you, you're in Cash Baptist Church, and um, you were there for what eight years? Yeah, and. Um, Kind of moving into what many of the people listening and, and myself would know, you you ended up, by the way, something else happened in 1974. You know what else happened in 1974? I was born. <laughs> you were you were called to a church I was born. And so um, that puts things in perspective there. Yeah. But So, of course, uh, 1980, you come to God's country, right? Right. Annapolis. And, and maybe you want to talk about that and how – I know I've heard the stories, and for other pastors and leaders, that's another. I mean, we just yeah. we were just talking earlier about um, Charles Stanley and um, his life, and of course the impact he made on the world. But seeing the churches that he was at 
and yeah. and knowing this, it's not an easy decision to leave a church. Amen. Uh, to uproot your family, move to a place you've never been before. And so, of course, you've had history with that and wisdom in that. Maybe you want to share a little about what that looked like. I'll back up just a little bit and say my first major decision was what am I going to do with Christ? And, of course, I accepted Christ. And then the next one was what are you going to do with your life? And God was calling me into ministry, and I finally got settled on that. And then God sent me the cash, and I was settled on that. And thought I was going to be there all my, all my ministry. I really did. And was making plans to do that. But I can look back now and say that was my plans right. and not God's plan. And uh, in 1980, out of the blue, this pulpit shows up from Central. And, of course, I'm happy. And my mother and father both were living at that time. they since then gone on to be with the Lord. But uh, I, I was the the only boy and the oldest of three children, and I had I felt like I had an obligation to be close to them where I could take care of them. And, and so one of the things that I had planned on was never leaving, at least till they died, and, you know, where I could take care of them. That was just my personal feeling. But in 1981, that pulpit committee came in. I never will forget. They walked into church, and we had just built a new sanctuary there. God was blessing, and... Uh, we almost had it paid for in just two or three years. And, and this committee walks in, and I'm thinking, what are they doing here? And uh, Did you know who they were when they I had no idea initially. where they were right. from. Okay. I've never been to Kannapolis in my life. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'd ever heard of it. But anyway, uh, they came in, and they sat down on the left-hand side of the church. Well, my minister of music came to me and said, if you let me, I'll go tell them to leave right now. And I said, no, don't do that. We don't know who those people are. And uh, so I preached that morning, but I was sick. I was a little bit sick. And I preached well after service. And uh, and about the time I got home, there was this big old car pulled up in the yard, and it was that pulpit committee. They came in and said, we like what we heard this morning, and uh, we'd like to talk with you a little bit. And I said, okay. They said, they asked me a question. I told them it was a loaded question. They said, if God was leading you, would you leave this church? I said, well, that's a loaded question. And I said, sure, if I can detect God leading me, yes, I would leave the church. And they said, well, we feel like you may be a man that could help us. And uh, will you pray about it? And I said, I'll pray about it. And uh, they said, we'll see you again. And so the next week, uh, it was in March, I think it was. And anyway, uh, it snowed like crazy. I mean, so we didn't have service. And uh, I forgot all about it. And then about two weeks after that, they showed up again. And that day, I knew that that, that thing was going to finalize. I argued with God. I, I prayed about it. I wrote notes. I wrote letters to God, put them in a drawer, and said, God, if you'll answer this, I know I'm supposed to go. And I couldn't get settled, honestly. One day, I did what I should have done to start with. I got down and prayed. I said, God, show me. In your word, some way, let me know that's what you want. And if that's what you want, I'll, I'll, I'll try my best to go. I opened up my Bible because I couldn't understand, Dean, because God would bless him. We were having people save morning and service and night services, and uh, we're in the middle of nowhere. I opened up my Bible in the book of Acts, started reading, and I hit chapter 8. And it said, God took Philip out of Samaria. Sent him down on the road to Gates to talk to one man. 
And I knew when God showed mm-hmm. me that, that he was moving me to God. Right. And so to make a long story short, it uh, worked out. They moved me. And I came up here and preached. And everybody was happy. And <laughs> it, was a, it was a wonderful day. The day we got it all settled and the day I got on ground as pastor. But I'll tell you, Leaving the other church, and right. you had something in there about that right. being so. It, it's a very difficult decision because right. you love the people. The people, a lot of people had been saved. They were young Christians, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I they needed somebody to help them grow. But that's how I knew. Right. So, what what did that look like with your family? So, you're married. How many children do you have then? I had three. Oh, you had all three. Yeah. At that point. And so, what does that look like as a as a man, as a pastor, talking to your family about it? It was tough because my oldest daughter was a sophomore in high school. She was a cheerleader at Chiral High School. And uh, the other one was in uh, middle school. And Becky was just, hadn't started. It was going to be her first year. But they, they all had friends. Right. And my wife's father was living it, you know, too at that time, and she had two brothers living at that time, and so her friends were down there. She had worked in banks and so forth and so on. And uh, when we came up here, my wife did feel that I had probably reached my potential as far as I could reach at cash because of the limitations of, you know, it's out in the middle of nowhere, opportunities were few, and she felt like that one day, God would move me, but it, it was not, she didn't think it was then mm. uh, to start with. So it, 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 it took some praying. And, uh, but one of the things that really helped us was when we came here, the church really responded to our kids and not just me. I mean, the leaders in the church, the Sunday school teachers, the workers uh, quickly plugged in our kids. And my wife was respected and loved and and it made things a lot easier. Right. And having a beautiful parsonage to live in, uh, and, of course, being taken care of, and uh, made it easy, but it was tough. Right. It really was tough. And being in the big city didn't didn't hurt either. Oh, <laughs> my. I mean, no one the would traffic ever, was awful. <laughs> yeah, no one would have ever thought Kannapolis would be considered a big city at that point. But yeah. um, anyway, so so you came, what? That's 1980. Came in 1980, and um, you've said you said the people were happy. I almost kind of interjected there, and it would be um, it would be a fantasy if you said all the people stayed happy for 38 years, right? No, no, no. <laughs> but they but they didn't. So, kind of as you're looking at coming to Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, leaving a new church, uh, leaving a the only church you had ever been at. Yeah. Um, what did the landscape look like at Central Baptist Church? Amount of people, budget, where they're at, what they need, kind of initial assessment of the church. To be honest with you, I was scared to death because doing a budget for a church like we were at Cash, and you know, working with a budget like you got here, much larger membership was probably three or four times as large. Uh, I knew where nothing was in Kannapolis. I, I down in South Carolina, I knew people I could witness to and trying to figure out how I could become a soul winner here. But when I began to look at, at the, the potential 
And to be honest with you, when I came to Central, they probably should have relocated maybe years before that. And I'm just looking back and, right. and, and making that comment, uh, not being critical, but but when I came to, to Central up on Waterburg, behind the Waterburger on 16th Street, the church was almost already full. They had no way to park anybody. I mean, I hadn't been there a year or two, and we were getting bad calls and comments <laughs> because our people were parking and people couldn't get out of their driveways and things like that. I mean, it was absolutely out of the banks in so many ways. They had no parking. Uh, they couldn't seat anybody else. The balcony was full. The downstairs, and this was this was actually probably three-fourths of that when I came was already there. The fellowship building was too small. Everything was too small. And uh, financially, they had money. Uh, they were doing 25% admissions, which was unheard of to me at that time. I, I had, didn't know a lot about mission work. Uh, like I said, I was as green as a gourd when God put me in the ministry. And I've, I've had to grow and I don't want to say it like this, but this is literally, I don't need a better way to say it. I had to grow on my own with the help of those that are around me. Right. And working, because my pastor did not have the, did not have that kind of capability. Right. I had a friend named Steve Vassar out of Columbia. He helped me more than any preacher at that time. And he had a lot of, he was Baptist, he was a graduate of Baptist College, Charleston. And so I tapped into him almost every week with different things. And then I got to know other great preachers. And then when I went to Fruitland, uh, you know, that's helped to influence my life where I could put some of that to use at Central, but it was still still quite a task. And, and you look out, and there were so many needs. And, and I could see a building program in the future. And I was scared to death to mention it to the people because they were so content where they were and with the money they had. Right. But, you know, when... When I prayed through about it and I called the deacons together, they got excited. And we started planning. And, and, and just a matter of, well, we started building, I think, in 85. I don't remember exactly, 86. And God just con constantly opened doors. And we built these facilities, got all this property, got it paid for. And to God be the glory. But... Um, it was a task. So when you come to Central, and these are things I don't, I really don't know. It's like, um, why were they looking for a pastor? Had the pastor retired, resigned? Not, that, not that, not if there were any reasons I don't need to know about. Right, but why were right. they looking for a pastor? Well, what had happened? Their pastor had retired. They could, they had a man that was here for eleven years. Probably, to be honest, he was probably the most evangelistic pastor. Uh, maybe of any that I look back and, and look at it, you know, on our picture and whatever. And it was Vic Trivet. Uh, he, was, he was strong in evangelism. A lot of people were saved under his ministry in Central. And uh, that was exciting to see so many Christians that he had been saved. But to answer that question, they'd had a little bit of trouble, and I don't know what it was about. I never did want to know. But anyway, they went and talked to a man by the name of John Hass. Somebody gave him his name up, and he was pastoring up in the mountains or somewhere. And uh, later became a dear friend to me and uh, a help in many ways. And 
John told him, literally, he said, well, he said, I'm going to retire in two years. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to retire in two years, period. Uh, me and God done got that settled. If you want me to come and stay two years and try to help your church, I'll be glad to do that. So that happened. Well, in two years, <laughs> he, he told him, word. he said, don't wait till the two years is up till you start looking. And, right. and so that's how the pulpit, they raised, got up a pulpit committee, and that's actually, they called me before he retired. Mm-hmm. Actually, he had about two more months. But everybody wanted, let's go ahead and move forward. And they asked me about it. And I said, the only way I'll do that is that you got to pay him just like you said you was going to pay him. So they paid him and me hmm. and paid right on in his right. retirement and everything. So, so that's how it happened. Right. That's how I wound up here. So the church was in a good place. There wasn't a – Oh, no. Yeah. No. Um, you know, of course, the reason I ask that is because a lot of churches today are looking for pastors because they ran one off or oh, yeah. or they're having problems and bringing somebody in yeah. to fix it. So, so you get there. Um, you said it's three or four times the budget, three or four times the size of what you're used to. Like initial, initial challenges, you you know there's you see already there's a need for a building program. Yeah. Um, what some people know, a lot of people don't know the the parking lot that was full was right beside my house where yeah, we lived. Right. Right. Um, so I can attest to the fact that there was a lot of cars around a lot of time. Um, you see the need. You're new. Of course, people are excited to have a new pastor. What are the challenges first two years? In the first two years of my pastorate, uh, there was a uh, probably some of what you're going through and have gone through maybe in the first two years I was going. Uh, Vic was well-loved. Right. And there were a lot of people that would cater to him or call him, and that bothered me. And he was not in the church anymore. No, he was not right. in the church anymore. Right. And that bothered me. And uh, I struggled with it. And But the people still, most of them were loyal to me, but, but I could sense that. Right. And uh, that's all I'll say about that part. But anyway, uh, I think the music, uh, we had a good, strong Choir, where I came from, Cash, they had a good music program here. But Lester Childers had been here for 17 years. They had done pretty much count meeting music, but they, you know, uh, and I'm not being critical, but I, I knew I wanted to move more toward a choral type ministry as God gave us liberty to do so. And uh, we knew we had some needs there. And we talked about it as deacons, the pastor. We prayed about it. Uh, sometimes there was bickering. Sometimes there was arguing, you know. More so, not that we didn't know what we wanted to do, but how to do it. Right. Make sure we didn't offend. Make sure we didn't hurt the church. Or uh, Lester Childers was a dear friend than this today. And did a great job for this church for 17 years. But we had, he came to me, this is, a, this is a, a wonderful thing that happened that was a plus for, I had nothing to do with it, God did it. But one day he told me, he said, uh, it's time for me to sit down. And I said, he said, I don't want you to try to talk me out of it. He said, preacher, we've got more people in the choir that know music, that know more music than I do. I can't leave these people. And I'm wore out. It's time to go get a man. Well, 
I had already, through Steve Vassar, knew what I wanted to do because I'd preach meetings for him in Columbia, knew what kind of music they did, and I said, this is where I want to go, right. you know. And uh, and how many years into Central is this? Probably, I can't remember when we brought Sid on, but that was when it was. Uh, I would say probably seven years, maybe eight. Okay. So nobody was on staff, you know, but me, right. when, even when we built the buildings. And uh, had a part-time secretary. So, so as a pastor, one of my questions, and if pastors end up listening to this, you get there at a new church, you know what you want, you know what you feel like the church needs, right. more importantly, what God expects. Right. But you go seven or eight years right. without getting it. Right. Um, what does that look like? How do you deal with it? Well, other than the the right answer, which is a lot of prayer, but um. that's that's what you have to do. And in confrontations or trouble in churches, the policy that I try to follow to be honest and be biblical. And Lester Childers had been hired by the church. They loved him. His family was here. And I would not hurt him for nothing in the world. I t- and I told the deacons that. I said, I will not hurt him. I said, God's got to do it. And though we went all those years, and I don't remember exactly how many, God worked it out. And today, Lester Childress is still my friend. He's still a member of this church. His influence is still remembered by many people here. Right. And I don't know. I don't know if he has any children here now or not. But he, all of his children grew up. Some of them went out and did ministries. And uh, but maybe I waited too long. I look back and maybe I could have done something different. But I'm satisfied and I'm content right. that I did what I did the way I did it. Right. And God handled it. Thank you for listening today. Please be sure to subscribe to the Impact Podcast for the upcoming episodes. And be sure to listen next month for the conclusion of this episode with Pastor Curtis Parker, who has and is making an impact in the community. Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina, is making an impact for the cause of Christ. Come, worship with us on Sunday mornings at 1030. And be sure to visit our website at cbccannapolis.com for more information about our ministries impacting our families and the community around us. Go, impact your world with the gospel.